Welcome to Journey in the Word with Pastor Randy Mosher of Calvary Chapel of the Cumberland Valley. We are located in Hagerstown, Maryland. Please join us every weekday as our pastor takes us verse by verse through a book of the Bible. Today, we're beginning in chapter 14 of Revelation, looking again at the 144,000 saints and the Lamb that has marked them and redeemed them. So if you're able, grab your Bibles and join us as we continue our Journey in the Word. Let's look at Revelation chapter 14. We're actually going to begin in in verse 1. Revelation 14 and verse 1. We're, we're breaking out of the darkness now, at least for a moment. You know, we've been looking at the dark things that, that were associated with the judgments that were coming, and we were talking about Antichrist for a number of weeks. But now we're going to get our focus back for just a little bit. He says in verse 1, Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion... Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 having his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the voice of many waters and like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These were redeemed from among men, being firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. And I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who has made heaven and earth, the sea, and springs of water. John says, then I looked and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion and with him 144,000 having his father's name written on their foreheads. Now, John no longer sees the beast that he's been describing to us in the previous chapters, right? We talked about the first beast being the, uh, the beast that he saw rising from the political chaos, from the seas of the earth, the tumultuous seas being the antichrist. And then the second beast that he saw rising from the earth that was going to point the attention of people on the earth to antichrist in that day and that person being the false prophet and we're going to come back to these guys again before we're done not here today but before this book is finished but here john no longer sees these but now he turns his focus to a different revelation as he now says that he sees a lamb a lamb that he says he sees standing on mount zion now the lamb john sees is of course who Jesus, right? He's referred to as the Lamb of God. We know that because we find John the Baptist calling him that, right? John the Baptist in John chapter 1 and verse 29, John 1 29 says, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, we find Peter applying this title to him as well. Because he says in verse 18, knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Even, even the Old Testament prophet Isaiah it referred to him in this way in a remarkable prophecy that, that he gave about the coming Messiah without even knowing who Jesus was. He gives this prophecy that is so remarkably accurate to who Jesus was when he came. But, but he says in Isaiah 53 and verse 7 specifically, 
Isaiah 53 and verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Throughout the scriptures, we find this reference to Jesus and it's a fitting description because Jesus is the, the idea of that unblemished lamb, of the sacrifice that was made as a part of the Passover. I am of the opinion and, and there are those that disagree, but I am in the opinion for some very good reasons. Maybe I'll cover that when we get to it again this resurrection year, but as we come to resurrection Sunday again, but I believe that Jesus was actually crucified on a Thursday and not on a Friday. And I believe that because that was the day that they were doing the preparation of the lambs to get them ready. I actually believe, again, my own speculation on this, but I believe with Jesus fulfilling prophecy so exactingly throughout of being that Passover sacrifice that he actually came into the city as the lambs were coming in on Palm Sunday, that he rode in in the midst. I think it may have been why the crowds had gathered, not because they knew Jesus was coming, but they had gathered to see those lambs coming in on that Sunday before when they'd be brought in and then put in the homes and they were there cheering those lambs and on the tail end of that I believe that's when Jesus rode in and then they saw Jesus and began to cry out as well I could be wrong on that I tend to think he fulfilled things so exactingly that he did that and on that Thursday if you look at John's account John actually talks about the fact that it was a double Sabbath year why because Friday would have been the Passover Sabbath and then they would have had the next Sabbath on the Saturday their normal Sabbath and so it would have been that Jesus would have died on Thursday Right about the time, if you look at the timing, it would have been about the time that they would have been sacrificing the lambs in the tabernacle, in the temple. They would have been sacrificing them as a part of the Passover that Jesus would have been hanging as well and dying. And it also adds up to the, to the actual days that it tells us that he was in the grave and works out. But whatever. The point being is that Jesus came to fulfill these things. And, and so the term Lamb of God is an absolutely fitting one for him. But we need to understand when it said that, it's not just talking about innocence. It's talking about Jesus taking that place of that sacrifice that, that could only partially cleanse human beings, right? Because the Passover sacrifice was a big deal. They'd be sprinkled by, you know, the, the sprinkling of the blood on the altar and on the, on the holy, in the Holy of Holies, on the ark, and, and all of that came from that. It was only temporary, but Jesus, as the ultimate Passover sacrifice, as the ultimate Passover lamb, as John declared, as, as Isaiah declares, as all of the passages declare, his sacrifice was once and for all. He literally became that Passover sacrifice for you and for me. And that's why you and I don't have to keep running back for salvation over and over again. Well, granted, we still have to cleanse our hands from the dirt and the filth that accumulates on our flesh by living in this fallen world, you know? But we don't have to keep running back. Our salvation is done. It's secure as we placed our faith in what he's done for us. And now here in Revelation, not only in this passage, but in 15 other places, we find Jesus referred to in this very context. In fact, the book of, in the book of Revelation, we find more references to Jesus in the context of a lamb than anywhere else in the Bible. Than anywhere else in the Bible. But throughout scripture as a whole, we find this symbolic linkage to Jesus. And again, it's a fitting description because one, like a lamb, he's pure and innocent. And like a lamb, Jesus was the object of sacrifice. And so you see this depiction of Jesus as a lamb is both clear and accurate as he is truly the lamb of God. But now John says that he sees Jesus, the lamb, standing on Mount Zion. Now, Mount Zion is the ancient name associated with the hills that made up the city of Jerusalem. 
So throughout scripture, we find the name Mount Zion, or we will find simply the name Zion associated with Jerusalem. Now, in some cases, it's, it's used as a reference to the heavenly city of Jerusalem. There are old hymns that we sing that talk about the city of our God, Mount Zion on the north, right? And, and it's referring in many cases to a heavenly city, not to the physical city that exists. And scripture clearly tells us that there is a day coming when God will establish a new Jerusalem that that will be located in heaven. Galatians 4.26. The Apostle Paul refers to this heavenly city as the Jerusalem above. In Hebrews 12.22, the writer of Hebrews refers to it simply as the heavenly Jerusalem. And, and even in many of the references in the Old Testament seem to make this linkage to the heavenly Jerusalem and not always to the earthly city. So the question that we have to ask as we now look at this particular verse is in which context is John speaking? Is he talking about the earthly city or is he talking about the heavenly one? Well, in other words, where is Jesus now standing as John now sees him as he records the things associated with Jesus in this passage? Some Bible scholars believe that he's seeing Jesus standing in the heavenly Jerusalem. Walvard, in his commentary, said, Some believe that when the title Mount Zion is used, it always refers to the heavenly Jerusalem. But when the term Zion is used without the term Mount, then it refers to the earthly city. But having said this, even Walvard himself concludes that that's a rather arbitrary association that might not always work out. So which is it that John is referring to? Well, I, I don't think we have to accept an arbitrary answer because John, I think, gives us the answer in something he records seeing in regard to the city in this passage. John says that he sees Jesus, but he also tells us he sees what? 144,000 people standing with him in the city. People who have his father's name written on their foreheads. Now, these 144,000 people that John is now seeing, I believe, and it's clear and contextually we're going to see that, is the same 144,000 people we saw back in Revelation chapter 7. These are the 144,000 Jewish believers. I called them when we studied that passage, the 144,000 Jewish Billy Grahams, right? Because they're going to be evangelists. They're going to be the ones who are going to reach the nation of Israel in this day. But these 144,000 Jewish believers who were told that they had been sealed by God, that's exactly what we saw when we were Revelation 7. God had marked them as his own. He kept them under his supernatural protection as they were called to perform this unique ministry task of, 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 of preaching during the tribulation period, of evangelizing the nation of Israel and others during the tribulation period. Look again at Revelation 7. You just flip back if you want. Verse 1. We'll just kind of look at that. Revelation 7 and verse 1. It says, After these things I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or any tree. And then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And and I heard the number of those who were sealed, 100. 
144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. Of the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 were sealed. And so we went through all the list of the tribes there, right? But again, that's the passage that dealt with 144,000. There is no doubt that the people that John now sees gathering here standing with Jesus in Revelation 14 is the same group of people. And I believe this solidly answers the question as to where Jesus is standing. This has to be the earthly Jerusalem, not the heavenly one. This has to be the earthly Jerusalem because if he were standing in the heavenly Jerusalem with this group, it would mean that God's seal upon them would have been meaningless and impotent, right? Why? Because that seal was clearly placed on these people to protect them from both the terrible judgments that were falling on the earth during this period and also to protect them from the Antichrist and the false prophet. God placed his seal on them and, and they, are, they are men, as we're going to see in a moment. These are not some angelic beings. These are real human beings. And God sealed them, not just to identify them as his, but to set them apart and to supernaturally protect them so that they could accomplish the things that God had told them that they were there to do. And he specifically gave instructions that they should not be touched or harmed in any way in a physical sense. So if what John is seeing here standing with Jesus in this moment were in heaven, then it would mean that they didn't survive the tribulation. It would mean that they would have been killed. And this being the case, it would mean that God's seal failed to fulfill the purpose of protecting them, but his seal will not fail to protect them. Because what John is now seeing isn't a heavenly vision in this moment, but it's an earthly one. And what's happening in this passage is that John in this moment is being catapulted to the end of the tribulation period to the day when Jesus will physically return to the earth, a day when he'll gather his people to himself, and even more specifically, a day when he'll be gathering this faithful remnant of 144,000 believers who are still alive, having completed their mission to gather them to himself right there in the city of Jerusalem. John is seeing past the events of the tribulation in this moment to the end of it all, to the day when Jesus physically returns. And these 144,000 saints, although they won't be the only believers that are going to survive the tribulation, they're being offered here as an illustration of God's powerful ability to protect and to preserve his people. They're in a sense like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, those three men who, even though they were thrown into the fiery furnace by Nebuchadnezzar, they were never touched. They were never harmed. They were protected. And why were they untouched? Because there was a fourth person standing with them in the flames that was protecting them, right? In fact, they referred to him, one who Nebuchadnezzar's counselors referred to as, but we see the three of them in there and they're not burning up. And we see one like the son of God walking in their midst. And that was a good description because it was the son of God who was there supernaturally protecting them. And it is the son of God who will stand with and supernaturally protect and preserve these 144,000 Jewish servants who will be set apart and sealed by God for their work for him during the tribulation period. Now, I know we talked some about this before, but I can't say this enough to you guys. This is an absolute truth for our lives. Whom God seals, God protects. And God brings through the fire. And not just them, but us. Now, maybe unlike the 144,000, you and I haven't been guaranteed protection from physical dangers all the time. But God has sealed us. God has sealed. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, the scriptures are resoundingly clear 
you've been told in 2 Corinthians 1, 21 and 22 and Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 that God has placed his seal upon you. And God's seal isn't only been placed there to mark your identification with him, but it also serves as his guarantee that he will keep you and he's going to protect you and, and, and even at times keeping you from physical harm as you live on the earth while you're completing something that he has tasked and intended for you to do. And in the meantime, while you're doing that, while you're accomplishing what it is that God has sent you to accomplish, nothing and no one can touch you until God says that it's time for you to be touched. Not a second sooner, not a second later. Now, I like this because sometimes we're worried way too much about what might happen to us. You know, if we, if, if in, a, in a physical sense, if we live our lives fully for Christ, if we, if we throw ourselves into want and abandon and serve him, we worry about what could happen to us. And, and when we worry like this, I think it keeps us from being the faithful servants that, that he wants us to be without hesitation, without reservation. We hold back because of our fear of what might happen to us. But when we realize that God has sealed us, I mean, think about this for a minute. Do you believe God's word? If he says he has sealed you, then it, you know, and, and it's his guarantee of protection, then, then we don't need to fear the things that we once feared. We don't need to. We, we can let go of our inhibitions. We can, we can pour ourselves into serving him because we know that ultimately we're protected until our work for him is absolutely accomplished and finished. So here's truth. In Christ, nothing can I say that in capital letters? Nothing, right? Will happen to you that God doesn't intend or allow to happen to you so long as you are walking according to his will. When you're walking with the Lord, when your heart is set on doing his will, set on serving him, when you're opening your life to being used by him, nothing and no one can touch you until God's plan for your life has been absolutely accomplished and his timetable allows for you to be touched in some way. So take heart. Walk with the Lord. Walk with the Lord. Pour yourself into doing his will. You don't need to fear what might happen to you because God has sealed you for the work that he's called you to do in this life. And he will protect and he will keep you. We have an even greater assurance associated with that seal that he's placed upon us. We're assured that no matter what happens to us in a physical sense, he's going to keep us in a spiritual sense forever. <laughs> forever. We're assured that no matter what happens to us in a physical sense, nothing can happen to us in a spiritual sense. What God seals, God keeps forever. Now you might say, well, what about that, that guy or that girl that, 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 that gave their lives to Christ, but they're not walking as they should. They're, they're wrapped up in some sin. You can't possibly believe that this applies to them, do you? Yeah, I do, even with them. What God seals, God keeps. If at some point they sincerely, and that's a question, but I'm not the judge of that. But at some point, if they sincerely place their faith in Christ, despite their sin, despite their failure to walk with them, walk with him as they should, through Christ, he promises to keep them. He promises to do it. Now, maybe like the, 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 the flames, you know, around them are going to be burning and, and, and burning and nipping at their, their heels over the sinful things that they're engaged in. But like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he's with them in the flames and ultimately he's going to bring them through. Maybe he'll bring them through in the way that Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 3.15, you know, bring them through as though by fire, you know. But he'll bring them through nonetheless. His seal is his guarantee. And also, again, this truth doesn't give us license to sin. 
you know, because some could perceive that. It's sad that I have to do this, but it's true. You know, it doesn't at the same time give us a license to sin. Anyone who, who believer who sees it as a license to sin and, and to do what they want, saying, well, Jesus is going to keep me anyways. I'm eternally secure, so it doesn't matter. I can go do what I want now. You know, it, it, wow, feeling like that, it's all going to work out and you can go do what you want, spiritually covered, you know. That means you need to do a check in your relationship with the Lord. You need to check your relationship with the Lord because if you're looking for an excuse to gratify your sinful lust and passions, then it's an indicator of a serious spiritual disconnect of some sort. I mean, we all have moments when we stumble, right? We all have moments when we stumble, when we fall, but, but those who are in Christ, they don't go around looking for spiritual loopholes in order to engage in sin. We don't take advantage of God's grace to, to, to enable and enhance our ability to sin. We understand and fully appreciate what Paul says in Romans 6, 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly. No, that's not what he says. Certainly not. I love this verse because it is the counter to all of that. You can almost hear Paul, right? What are you thinking? <laughs> That's what he's saying. What are you thinking? You really believe that? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? But with this said, just because you sin, just because you find yourself walking in places where you don't belong at times, it doesn't negate the seal that God has placed upon your life if you're truly in Christ. His seal is both his identification of his ownership over you and his promise and guarantee of protection and to bring you through is guaranteed that he will be faithful to bring you through. See, it's about his faithfulness, not about yours. Salvation is not about your faithfulness. It's about his faithfulness to you. But you know what? That reality for me is the very thing that has caused my life to be lived differently. The very fact that I know that he hasn't predicated this upon me, that he's done this for me. Why? I'm like Paul. Why would I want to continue in sin with so great a salvation, with so great a gift that's been given? So here in this passage, we have these 144,000 who in a very real sense will be living proof of these truths in both a physical sense and a spiritual sense. They are the sealed of Israel, those Jewish men who during the tribulation period will recognize Jesus as their true Messiah and who will place their faith in him and, and who will subsequently be sealed by God, identifying them as his servants and protected by him as they serve him. And it is these 144,000 that John now sees coming through the tribulation, unscathed, untouched. Antichrist couldn't do anything to stop them. And they're now found standing here in the earthly Jerusalem with Jesus as he begins his millennial reign on the earth. By the way, note one other thing before we move on. Note how the seal of God stands out in stark contrast to the seal that we just studied in the last chapter last week. Remember? We were talking about the seal that Antichrist will be putting on people, their loyalty to him. Note how this stands in stark contrast here. Antichrist will be trying to, to make himself like God, and, and, and like God, he'll try to seal people as an identification of them and of his protection of them. But unlike God's seal, his won't last, and nor, nor will it ever protect his followers spiritually because when God intervenes, both he and they are going to find themselves cast into the lake of fire, and they're going to burn forever and ever. So even though he's mimicking God, he can't offer to people what God offers. It's all a deception. It's all a lie. Only God offers what's true 
and what's permanent. I encourage you to remember this for your own life right now. I encourage you to think about this because Satan is trying to offer you guys and me all kinds of stuff. He's trying to offer us like he did to Jesus. I can give you this if you'll just fall down and worship me. Oh, he doesn't say it that way because I don't think there's any of us in here who would say, oh yeah, I want to fall down and worship you. Say, yeah, right. I'd, yeah, I'd do that and I'm going to walk out and get hit by a car too, you know, intentionally. No, we wouldn't do that. But he comes subtly to us and he offers us things that appeal to our senses, that appeal to our flesh, that appeal to the stuff that, that down inside at times we still want. And he tries to get us to follow things that he's trying to make equally or more appealing than the things that God is offering to you. But what Satan is offering to you will always come up short. It's always going to come up short every time because it's all a lie. It's all a deception. Take what the Lord offers you instead. It's better. You're going to find what the Lord offers you is perfect. And more than that, it's lasting. It's lasting, you see. Well, look on at verse 2. Because John goes on now and he says in verse 2, And I heard a voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters and like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. I like this one. John now hears some really interesting things. Things that he hears taking place. Now, in this case, he hears this in heaven. Okay, and he makes that clear, and not on the earth. First, he says that he hears a voice like that of many waters and like the voice of loud thunder. This is the same sound he heard and described to us back in Revelation chapter 1, and again in Revelation chapter 4, where we determined that it was a description of what? The voice of God. That it was the voice of God. And so we can assume here in this passage that it's the same thing. It's the voice of God now speaking. Now John doesn't tell us exactly what it is that God is saying. But we can assume that whatever it is he's saying, it has to do with the things that are taking place on the earth in this moment. And most likely having to do with Jesus and the gathering these 144,000 believers to himself in Jerusalem. Maybe he's speaking approval. Maybe he's speaking approval to these end-time saints as they faithfully endured in their walk and ministry for him. Maybe he's telling each and every one of them what Jesus says he'll one day tell all of us who faithfully serve him. Well done, thou good and faithful servants. Maybe that's what they're hearing. We don't know. But John clearly tells us that he's saying something in this moment. But even though John doesn't tell us what it is that God's saying as he hears his voice, John does want us to know that God is speaking. Maybe he wants us to know this so that we'll appreciate the fact that God does speak. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Journey in the Word, a verse-by-verse teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel of the Cumberland Valley. If you would like to listen to more teachings or find out more information about us, go to www.journeyintheword.org. That's www.journeyintheword.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll tune in for our next episode as we continue our Journey in the Word.